This is Developer Stories, where we ask you why you built it, and we look behind the scenes of some of tech's passion projects and people. Welcome to the show. You're in the right place. Welcome to Developer Stories. I'm Vanessa Socket, and joining me today is Chris Gorgolevsky, a combined software engineer, product manager, and researcher now at Google. Chris has a really rich history that spans from academic leadership and contributions, and now is spreading his vision for products and initiatives within Google. And for a personal disclaimer, Chris and I go a few years back when I was a graduate student in Poldrack Lab at Stanford. Chris was a research associate and really quite influential in helping me to engage with some of my first open science projects in neuroinformatics. So because we're in the Thanksgiving and holiday season and I don't want to disappoint the turkeys, a belated thank you, Chris, and also welcome to the show. Wow, wow, thank you for having me. Yes, it was awesome time working together at Stanford. That was great. I miss those days. I miss them too, especially since we're in the pandemic now, but we could probably talk a little bit about that. Let's get started and let's start at the beginning. Your journey, I guess, started at the University of Edinburgh and you were studying informatics. Can you walk us through these early years and what got you interested in studying the human brain and how that interest translated into this drive to build databases and software? Yeah, absolutely. I think it was a potentially unusual and interesting journey. It actually starts a little bit earlier than University of Edinburgh. I started my undergraduate degree in computer science in my hometown of Poznan. And it was super exciting building things, building new realities, building things that people are going to use. But at that stage, I had an inkling to not only build things, but also understand how the world around us works. And what's more challenging question than understanding how the human brain works? Especially interesting, this was because of the metaphors that we often use between computers and the biological computational machines like brains. So during that time, I actually started a second degree in cognitive science, and that's how I got into both learning how to make machines do cool stuff, but also understanding how psychology works, what's driving human behavior. And what are the few, very few things we know about the human brain. And that's how I got enrolled eventually into this program at University of Edinburgh. It was a school of informatics, but the program was in computational neuroscience and neuroinformatics. And that's how I started. It was a really cool program. We had a lot of exposure to different labs and different scientists, and I was able to learn not only about the thing that I ended up doing, human brain imaging, but also other parts of neuroscience that involve animals and electrode recordings and things that are on a day-to-day basis, much, much different. But at the same time, we talked to neuroscientists who were embedded in the School of Informatics. So hardcore computer science was happening there, which allowed us to kind of combine those two worlds. Within that group, most people were, were working on computational stuff when it's mostly modeling. So trying to figure out if we can 
build programs that simulate certain observed behaviors of biological systems and help use that to better understand how those systems work. And I say systems because often we have to focus on very small things like just the small networks of neurons or something like that. But there were also groups like me that were more pursuing questions that are more applied. So for example, my PhD thesis was in planning brain surgeries and we're using magnetic resonance imaging, so brain scans basically to help neurosurgeons to assess the risks of the procedure, plan the approach, so where to open the skull and decide which part surrounding a tumor to remove to maximize the potential positive outcome of the surgery and minimize the chances of any cognitive impairments afterwards. So very applied work. I, I work with patients and surgeons and you could really see the impact of it. And that's basically how my journey in, in science began. So how did you eventually kind of wander over to the U.S. to work with the honorable, the amazing Russ Poldrack? Ah, <laughs> I love Russ. Russ. I have, I have yeah. to say that. I have to throw that in. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm in the same camp of people very impressed by Russ. And, but before I got to, to Poldrack Lab, I actually had a postdoc in Max Planck Institute in Leipzig, Germany with Tani Margulis, who's also amazing. And over there, we're doing much more cognitive neuroscience, so less clinical, less applied to actual diseases, more about trying to understand how the brain works. And some of the work I was doing, they're focused on mind wandering. But at that stage, it was clear to me that the biggest impact I can make on this field is by building tools and figuring problems that scientists could solve much better with tools and finding that kind of market fit of tooling for a scientist to basically make them more productive, more accurate, and basically better at, at doing science. And that started small with building workflow engines for data processing for MRI data. And that's how NiPipe started where I had some large contributions in the beginning, but in Leipzig, I started focusing more on data sharing and specifically it was one of the biggest thing that I started while working over there was this data repository called NeuroVault, which I hacked together in Django. And the premise behind this database was that scientists in human brain imaging have been mostly using the medium of a paper, which is basically a PDF to convey their findings, but underneath most of these cognitive neuroscience papers, they were rich data sets that the scientists didn't have any means to share between each other. And that repository was that. It was basically an Instagram for brain maps without the cool factor. Nonetheless, it was pretty successful and allowed not only researchers to gain more insights into each other's work, but also allowed some further down the road, larger projects were doing meta-analysis and building predictive models based on the aggregate of that data. But to answer your question, how I got to Poldrag Lab, at the end of that postdoc, I really worked with Russ or knew him, but that's when I also learned that he was moving to Stanford and I found this very appealing. So I just hit him up and asked whether he would like to hire me. 
And he said, yes. And that's how I ended up in California. Fantastic. And Chris, we have a new thing on the show called Why Did You Build It? And you actually answered all three questions without knowing about it. So that was very impressive. The three questions are, what did you build? Why did you build it? And who was it for? So to mirror what you said, uh, you talked about NeuroVault. And you built it because neuroscientist researchers were having a hard time really getting their data out there, sharing their data. And it was for the neuroscientists. Do you want to briefly tell us about Nightpipe and answer those three questions? Because I think that's been a fairly successful tool too. Yeah, absolutely. So Nightpipe was tackling the issue of heterogeneity in terms of ways to interface with different tools for analysis of MRI research. So what we basically did, we created an abstraction layer that allowed a scientist to mix and match different tools in a single pipeline to create flexibly whatever analysis they wanted without having to fully understand the, the craziness of some of these interfaces. And that allowed researchers to not only create flexible pipelines, but often do things that they couldn't do otherwise. And on top of that, when we had those unified interfaces, we had a pipeline engine that there are plenty of those right now that ours did the basic, the same thing, optimization, topological sorting and things like that, and scheduling jobs on large clusters and different kind of plugins for execution. So there was a component of performance there as well. So basically it was for researchers to enable them to, to build more flexible analysis pipelines. And it was pretty successful because the interesting thing about the persona of kind of academic researcher is that very rarely they do one thing twice. So that flexibility and the ability to build things that are very custom is very important in that realm, which is so, somehow counterintuitive for most like enterprise business applications where there's lots of repeated actions and, you know, build it once and use it all the time. In science, it's very much uh, everything is bespoke. So if you can build a framework that gets you more efficient in building bespoke things. That's great. Huh. So if NeuroVault is the Instagram of neuroinformatics tools, then maybe Nightpipe is Pinterest? Oh, maybe. Or maybe Roblox, but I haven't used it ever, so I'm not sure. Maybe Minecraft or... <laughs> it's basically oh yeah, Minecraft sandbox. is good. I'm, yeah. I'm loving the social media slash online MMORPG or single player RPG references. So let's move forward now to Stanford. I think at Stanford, you started as a postdoc and you quickly migrated into a research associate role. And this is sort of superficially an interesting move because it reflects something about identity. And of course, at the time, just seeing this change, I couldn't have known sort of what was going on in your head. So when you decided to have this career identity title change, what was the motivation behind that? Uh, this is a very good question. And I think that I'm, I'm happy to talk about identity because I feel like I have a lot of feelings about it, basically. Maybe not that that particular title change. I think that one was a little bit less substantial, but it definitely was a little bit complicated to navigate the research environment as an engineer, de facto engineer, 
and the scientist at the same time. And, and that's something that I struggle to this day. It's, it's sometimes complex to explain who you really are when you both are interested in the product side of things, where you're interested in how things are really built, and you're also interested in answering scientific questions, and you can contribute to all these things. But in certain environments, it's just human nature that people will try to figure out which box you actually fit in and, and then put you in that box and treat you uh, as that person. So that's something I still haven't figured out completely to this day, because later on after that transition, I did join Google first as a software engineer, but at that stage, I was more involved in coordinating big efforts uh, and data standardization and trying to figure out what are going to be our big next steps and gathering funding and definitely understanding the mindset of a scientist. And then I switched to just being a, a software engineer in a very large company where I was expected to write code and that's it. And that was a little bit of a, a culture shock for me, definitely. Basically, I'm saying that I can relate to the identity question. I'm not very good advice on it, though. If you could give me some, I would love to hear it. Well, first, I totally agree that there's so much that comes with, you know, giving a talk and presenting your title as something. People do immediately put you in a box. And I kind of want to step back a little bit and unwrap that story a little bit more. Can you walk us through what was going through your head at the time, how the opportunity presented itself, how you made that hard decision? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think I ever publicly talked about it, so it's going to be an exclusive. I think we, we've together built some really great stuff that people loved. And the center I was directing at Stanford was very successful in like very objective metrics in terms of the amount of private and public funding we're getting and the sheer number of taxpayer dollars our products were saving by redistributing data that was already acquired using grant money. So things were going very, very well uh, within these metrics. And I thought I would be able to continue my career and like keep growing in this kind of traditional scientific way, as in get a professorship somewhere and start my own lab and keep doing these things. But at that stage, I also learned how academic reward system works. And I had a lot of doubts about whether I want to be part of it. And I also realized that the demand for academic professors is very low in comparison to the supply of PhD graduates. So when I went on the job market, trying to find a, a time track job, I succeeded, but it was much harder than I thought it would be. And it would require certain life compromises. So for example, I would have to move to a particular place that I never considered living in before. And these hard choices and basically internalizing what's the cost of continuing doing this kind of work and science made me doubt things. It's kind of opened this door in my head to kind of not sugarcoat things as much as I might have in the past and becoming more critical about how the peer review process looks like, how the publishing process looks like, 
and how much in science basically your success depends on storytelling rather than actual scrutiny and how the majority of work is being done by PhD students who might not be aware of the very, very slim prospects of them actually succeeding on this career path because of the just sheer tiny number of, of professorship opportunities out there. And when I started thinking about like, am I going to be a PI now and a, sorry, a principal investigator, a, a professor having their own lab and they, and my success will depend on me kind of not necessarily be super clear about the fact that when I hire PhD students, they actually are very unlikely to become professors themselves because there are just so few jobs out there and I'll have to like hide that fact from them. I was uncomfortable with that. And at the same time, I saw a lot of flaws in this particular field I was in, human neuroimaging, where I've seen it. It's basically now been 40 years since this technique, functional uh, magnetic resonance imaging has been developed. And it has, despite millions, probably billions of dollars poured into it right now, not that much to show for in terms of the impact on our understandings of how the human brain works or even more applications towards diagnosis, diagnosing diseases or providing any therapy for mental disorders. And that was a little bit disappointing. And I was asking myself, do I want to actually spend the rest of my life working on this technique when I kind of not necessarily see that it's, it's having the impact I would like my life to have while you know, dealing with all of the unnecessary unpleasantness and inefficiencies of the academic environment. And I'm putting this very mildly here. So all of these doubts combined made me start looking outside. And I lived in Bay Area back then. So actually, thanks to you, you gave me a ticket to a conference. I believe it was Google Next or something like that. And I went to that conference and I ran into Anthony Goldblum, CEO of Kaggle, because that was after Kaggle was acquired by Google and they had a booth there and we just talked a lot about data sharing and one thing led to another. And he offered me a kind of temporary consulting job at Kaggle when I was working on dataset strategy for them. Uh, and that's how I got, I got introduced to Google and kind of got a view of how I can be productive and contribute at a different environment than, than academia. I love that story. And I have just felt pure joy seeing you decide to change your career and really, at least from my perception, grow and enjoy what you're doing. And I kind of think you're underselling your academic experience quite a bit. You have this amazing ability that's quite rare to bring people together around ideas. You're good at both the people side and the technical side, which is a very hard thing. Just examples that we've talked about, NeuroVault, we haven't mentioned, but there's BIDS, the brain imaging data structure, there's NIPIPE, and just the whole sort of neuroinformatics community. I think you made the reproducibility award at that annual conference. What was that called? Yeah, OHBM, yes. We started yes. this reproducibility award at OHBM. I, that one is very close to my heart because it was trying to change the academic culture by rewarding attempts for replicating scientific research. So it's really like the pursuit of proof, not pursuit of 
splashy findings and, and you know, clickbait. It's pursuit of verifying whether this thing is actually true. And we convince the leadership of that conference that it's something that we want to like call out and give people shiny plaques and money for doing that at this big, like, I don't know, 2000 people conference. So I was very proud of that. Yes, exactly. So you're sort of drawn to both sides of these things, the people side and the technical side, changing the politics and the culture, but also building really quality software. Can you talk about now your experience at Google? You said it was sort of eye-opening and, and challenging going in and you know just being expected to write code all the time. And it sounds like you had this desire to really kind of go back to the people side. Aside from that, what was behind your choice to switch over to product manager? And can you tell us what that role is like from the perspective of an engineer? It's actually been, in general, my journey at Google has been very, very educational on many different fronts. Understanding how this company works, both from technical side, when I first joined, I was working on a product called Dataset Search, it's search vertical for datasets. And from a technical point of view, it was amazing to like work with some of the tools that have like decades of history and, and see like unraveling that onion of like, oh, like this tool is there because of that improvement in search and search is the core product at Google. So it was, it was very, very cool from a technical point of view to like learn about that. But Google is also like a very big company. It was a bit of a shock going from our you know, even that international community that I was working on, on standards, it was maybe like 20, 40 people, but, but here we're talking about an organization that is now 170,000 and there's a lot of public scrutiny. There's a lot of legal scrutiny. So there's tons of process in this company because otherwise it wouldn't be possible for it to truly exist or, or be efficient. So a lot of things are, has to be structured, has to be planned and it's a little bit hard to do things bottom up the way we were able to uh, back in academia, but I still wanted to play that role of connecting people and projects and trying to figure out what is the thing that we can build to make the biggest impact. And that's where I learned about the role of a product manager, where this is essentially the job description, understanding the users, understanding their needs and trying to figure out how to how to solve those needs and how to remove those pain points, how to build something that will really make people more efficient and happy and basically delight them. And to do that, you also have to understand the technical side and you have to understand what's possible, how hard something would be. And where this is actually the hardest, I believe, to achieve is in the, in the space of applying machine learning to user-facing products. And that's the space I'm in right now, really cool space, lots of large language models. And I'm going to talk about it a little bit more, hopefully later, but just to answer your question about the transition, I basically wanted to have more insight into why we're doing what we're doing uh, and understanding the actual user needs we're solving. And I thought that with, you know, with those people's skills, I would be able to contribute and also help with the technical background. So that's why I decided to switch to, to product management. It's a process at Google. And one of the best things about Google is that the company does allow you to move around quite a bit. 
and switch teams, but also potentially switch roles. It's not perfectly seamless. Like there's still checks and balances. It's a little bit easier right now. When I was doing it, I still had to go through interviews for product management, for which I had to prepare quite a bit. And I also went through a, a six months trial period where I was doing the job and being evaluated on that job and seeing whether I can do it well. But I, I did like it and I did convert to that role and it's a different set of challenges. And I started doing this and did it for a year at ads, which was also very, very interesting to understand how digital marketing works, what are the different you know, pressures and rewards and different factors in the market, especially from the point of Google, where this is the core business. And I was working on ads measurement and applying machine learning there. It's a fascinating and a very, very complex space. So it was very interesting to learn about it. But eventually I've internally, I saw an ad for a team doing machine learning applications for internal developer tools. And since I saw Copilot and was, I was already following the advances from OpenAI and GPT-3, I was enamored by this technology. And I just thought that this is once in a lifetime opportunity to be there on ground zero and try to figure out these product questions and trying to figure out how can we build something that takes advantage of this like magical technology uh, and help developers. So that's where I am now. Ground zero. Likely you can't share all your top secret stuff that you're working on, but maybe can you tell us on a high level, the things that you're really excited about? Absolutely. So one thing that we are, we share this publicly is that we have very successfully deployed a version of machine learning code completion in our internal tools. And this approach has been slightly different from what we saw in Copilot outside. First of all, from kind of a product and like market fit evaluation was interesting how we rolled it out, starting very, very small, just re-ranking suggestion from normal code completion based on syntax then going to a single line predictions and just recently rolling out something longer because we wanted to very carefully evaluate the impact of this technology on developer productivity and satisfaction. And we also approach this differently from a technical point of view. Our models are much smaller, which makes them much cheaper to run, but also allow them to have very low latency which is very important in the context of code completion. And we are able to do so much with smaller models because we're also in a very specific space that is all of Google code base is stored in a single monolithic repository, which could be treated just like a technical detail, but it's also all adhering to the same style guides and the same standards across the whole company. So you can imagine there's a ton of code there and a lot of it's a very homogeneous, high quality. Uh, so with this data set, we were able to train fairly good models that are smaller, but still provide very good benefits to developers. And it's amazing to join this project and be able to see the user reaction. I've never seen that or I haven't seen that much. I haven't seen that at Google, honestly, before where 
we had users going through our internal like bug reporting tool opening a bug and saying i have no issues to report i just love this so much i wanted to tell you that it's just amazing how much love the team very rightfully so received for building and deploying this feature and we hope to we have a lot of cool things coming up in different spaces not just in code generation so we hope to take advantage of this and it's a very it's a very complex work from organizational point of view as well because we basically do research translation here we work very closely with collaborators from google brain and we are trying to figure out which research projects we can put into production navigating these these relationships is something that we're still learning but it's definitely worthwhile because we'll be able to deliver things that no one dreamt about before so it's a very very exciting space to be in i love that you get love notes from your users james cup would call those deliograms all right ah, so i'm love gonna this term. <laughs> and it's kind of interesting when you think about it we tend to hear feedback from users of our software or tools, like when things go wrong, right? People open bug reports, they say, oh, this thing doesn't work, but it's just so rare for someone to be like, oh no, I don't have a problem. I just wanted to open this to tell you how lovely this tool is. It just, it kind of blows my mind because it's so rare. Absolutely. It is, it is a bit of a problem, but you know, as, as, as you both know, it's, we tend to remember negative things better. So that's, that's why you do this whole tendency of users mostly raising issues that need to be fixed is, is more common, but in many cases, it comes from a good place. People just want your software to become better. And I think that's a, it's a healthy way of looking at this. And another thing I've, <laughs> I sometimes get reminded by is if you don't get much feedback on a tool, it doesn't mean that the tool is not doing their job. It just means that people are just taking it for granted. There was a recent internal thing where a certain tool was struggling to get certain resources. And they decided to test whether actually the necessity for this tool to be as, as little reliable as the resourcing would suggest is true. So they turned it off for, uh, they wanted to turn it off for a whole day initially, but there was so much uproar about this tool actually being offline that that was quickly brought up. And the, the necessity for this tool being reliably available has been proven empirically very, very well. So sometimes just understanding how much your users will miss the thing that you've built if it wasn't there is an important signal. That's a really interesting observation. So sometimes not getting all those issue reports doesn't necessarily indicate that the tool isn't useful. So yeah. Chris, just be totally honest with me. I am, I am strong. I can take it. Am I going to be replaced with a machine learning algorithm? <laughs> oh, no, absolutely not. It's like the way we're seeing this uh, in many spaces. This is not just programming, but we're seeing this in generation of art. We're seeing this in design spaces. We're seeing this in generation of, of prose, of written text. It's basically making you more efficient, faster, better at taking the ideas in your head into reality. And in terms of programming, it basically means that 
you still write code, but you you don't have to look up different APIs on Stack Overflow as often as, as you would before, or open that documentation just to check like what are the parameters of this function or that function. Or, you know, in some cases, it's also going to be that, oh, you know, you need this helper function. So you're going to write the signature for this helper function and the, the model will complete the body of this helper function because it was so simple. But it doesn't mean that the model would know that the helper function needs to be there. So I think it's just going to reduce the toil of the day-to-day -day of programming and make, make you more efficient and probably stay in that flow more because you don't need to be interrupted by going outside of the ID and looking up different things. So hopefully it will make it more enjoyable. And we are seeing some research on the GitHub or Copilot side that, that the enjoyment is also being enhanced by these features. But no, you're not going to be replaced by ML models. Excellent. I won't be a deprecated dinosaur. I will be a superpowered dinosaur. And, you know, I actually had a recent experience that really reflects what you just said. So I use, I always have written code in Ubuntu's default editor called gedit or getit. And this included Go. And I had a meeting with one of my collaborators and I was working on the script sort of pair programming. He's like, why are you in like this editor? It's not helping you at all. And he's like, you have to try VS code. And I was like, grumble, grumble. I'm a minimalist, grumble, grumble. But then I tried it and oh my God, it blew my mind. It would automatically import things. It would format my code. I could sort of autofill structs to see what they were and types and see the errors before compiling stuff. And in that first weekend, I wrote like over 5,000 lines of code on this project I was working on and my mind was blown. And you're totally right that it allowed me to kind of stay in my environment, stay in my flow without opening up like a million different browser windows to browse documentation and try to find that same information that wasn't readily available to me. So that was awesome. Absolutely. And I've learned something. I've used gedit a lot and only now I understand the pun in it. The get it. Now I get it. Oh my God. I, I had never, I've been using this since like 2011, I think. And I, I didn't get it. I just didn't get it. No, I get it. Ah. But no, okay. absolutely. It's like we, we often like repeat that kind of goal of staying in the flow and, and the, the main advantage of code completion specifically is that you do not have to look up things. It's not about you being able to type faster. So it's really about encapsulating the knowledge about the relationship between code you've written and the code that is in the file you're editing and the code that fits into the gap that you're trying to fill. The code that has yet to be written. Exactly. <laughs> Are there any sort of last bits of wisdom, things you've learned at Google about yourself that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah. I think it's a, it's a very interesting times we are, we are living in when it's maybe not be easy to try to find your role and what is this thing that you're going to be best at doing. But I do appreciate that there are places like Google that allow me to do this exploration and try to find that best fit. I'm not saying everyone should have a meandering path like mine. It has a lot of disadvantages, like 
for example, if, if let's say either of us did engineering from college till now, we would very well fit in that pigeonhole and interactions with others would be much easier. So there are some disadvantages, but for people who like to learn how the world works and how different organizations work, I think it's, it's great that there are companies like Google and there are environments such as graduate schools that allow you to explore different things for us to understand how this organization works and having these rich, unusual careers. So it sounds like if someone is maybe in an academic role and they're, something doesn't feel right, they're itching for something more, they don't feel like their identity matches, it sounds like you're kind of encouraging them to at least look into other options that might be out there. Oh, specifically for people in grad school, people without tenure, definitely, definitely. I think that the best advice I've been hearing in this context is just break the bubble, like start having conversations with people who have different careers, start meeting with people who are doing different stuff. Don't just stay in the lab and talk to your supervisor because you will never understand the other opportunities that most likely you will have to take on. Because let's face it, very, very small fraction of PhD graduates actually end up being tenure track professors. It's just the numbers are not there. There are so few open spots. And I feel the the fact that this is so shocking comes from the setup in which most of the labs operate, where it's like a very kind of tight knit group and, you know, all hands on board and we like, we research together and we party together. And it's very easy to forget that there's this whole world outside. And when reality comes to the picture and you're being, you're facing with like not getting that tenure track job. Now suddenly you have to discover this outside world and break out of this bubble. So the sooner you do it, the easier the transition is going to be. That's great advice. Break the bubble. So now we really are coming up on time. I'll have just a few more questions. What is your unpopular tech opinion? Ooh, unpopular tech opinion. Well, like I can do very specific. I don't hate regular expressions. I think that's unpopular. I actually find them quite useful sometimes. I think that's a fair unpopular opinion. I, I kind of like regex too. I guess I didn't know it was super unpopular. <laughs> okay. Final question. When you are on your computer doing something with software or with people, what do you like to do in your free time? I got a couple of pandemic pups. We adopted a couple of dogs during the, the pandy. And I love hanging out with them, going on walks and, and playing with them. They're amazing. Dogs are so great. Like when I come back home every day, they are so excited as if this was the best day of their life reliably every single day. It's amazing. That does sound amazing. Someone that is always looking forward to see you. So Chris, it has been super fun catching up. You are truly amazing in the impact that you've had on the neuroscience community and now at Google, the stuff you're working on is super cool. You're really a strong example also for the larger community that it's okay to kind of look at your path and decide to pursue a different adventure. And you can still have impact just wearing a different hat. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. And I hope that you continue to have great adventures with your cute little dogs. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. I had a lot of fun.